0: Let's pray together. Lord, my heart, and I'm sure everyone's heart, is so easily distracted by things that are good and distracted away from what is best. And you are best. Your word is best and final and life-giving. So give us a heart to hear it, and more than that, heart, courage, faith, love, to put it into practice, to actually obey it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I'm delighted to introduce a brother in Christ, a dear friend, Ray Comfort. When I was only a college student and there were still cassette tapes, someone gave me a cassette tape with a sermon entitled, Hell's Best Kept Secret. If you haven't heard that, you need to avail yourself of the opportunity that Ray will give you to, to do just that. It's, it's a life-changing teaching from the Word of God. Though I'd been three generations in ministry with my grandfather, the first saved on that side of the family, I'd struggled for years to understand why people made an apparent decision to follow Jesus and so quickly fell away. Raised their hands, walked the aisle, sign the card, pray a prayer, never to be seen again. Hell's best kept secret helped me understand the biblical reasons why that happened and the biblical cure as well. Ray is, first of all, a follower of Jesus. Like my grandpa years and years and years ago, he loved Jesus so much, he immediately started telling people about him in his home country of New Zealand, preaching in the open air. And that eventually led to the founding of Living Waters Ministry, something that's been not only enormously influential for our church, but for churches really all across the world now. I'm very delighted to introduce to you our friend and brother, Ray Comfort. Help me make him welcome.
1: I'm delighted and relieved to be here. I say relieved because my wife is terrified whenever I drive drive myself anywhere because I've got the directions of a dead goose. (laughs) I uh, spoke in a church about three weeks ago on a Friday night, and then I had another one in San Diego on the next day, and as I went into the hotel after the service on the Friday night, I looked at the directions, and it had a letter with details of my check-in for the hotel, and I thought of... How so many people have their identity stolen, and I just ripped that into a thousand pieces and threw it in the trash, and then sat down to look at the directions for the next morning's service in San Diego. You know where they were? In the trash. (laughs) They were in as one piece. So I spent the next 10 minutes playing jigsaw puzzles on the bed to find out where I was going to be the next day. So I'm delighted to be here, and, and thank God. Open your Bibles if you would. Exodus 33, verse 18. A few weeks ago, I was invited to speak at a Christian school, and the subject was evangelism and missions, and I thought, well, that's appropriate for a new word I have called divine justice, because it highlights the number one motivation for me wanting to reach out to the lost, and that is the existence of hell. If hell didn't exist, neither would our ministry. I would have moved from New Zealand years ago up to Australia where the water's warm and just spent my life surfing until I passed on to that great surf shop in the sky. And existence of hell was what I decided I'd speak about to this chapel, obviously was teenagers, but I had qualified it at the beginning. I was going to say this is a heavy word but I trust you're mature enough to receive it. And when I got there to speak at the chapel, it was 200 (laughs) five-year-olds. I said the same thing. Uh, So I had a complete change of service um, subject, and it went well. And I'm relieved to see you're not five-year-olds here today, so we're going to look at Exodus 33. We're going to look at the subject. If God is loving and good, how could he possibly create hell? Now, I am fascinated by the universal way human beings have of expressing joy. expressing joy. If you're a president of the United States and you've just won an election, you applaud. If you're a dictator in North Korea and you're sending a ballistic missile up to kill people, you applaud with excitement. If you're a little baby and you're a toddler that's just managing to sit up and someone puts a kitten in front of you, you intuitively clap your hands. That's the way we express joy so often. And if you're part of a group of 80,000 people at the Super Bowl and there is a football player that does something you really like, you want to praise him so you roar with the other people and applaud. And if you've ever been in a stadium with 80,000 people and you feel that applause, you know that it's something very special. Years ago, when my son, who's now in his 40s, I haven't got a clue how old he was, because he keeps, how old he is, because he keeps changing it every year. But when he was four years old, 1977, I decided I wanted him to see the crucifixion to the end of the movie, Ben-Hur. And if you've never seen Ben-Hur, you need to repent, because it's the most wonderful portrayal of the life of Christ you'll ever see on the silver screen. So I called the manager and I said, I'm a Christian, I'd like my son to see the crucifixion at the end of Ben-Hur, can we come in in the last 10 minutes? He said, sure. So we entered this movie theater, and you've got to realize, my son, Jacob, had only seen a 14-inch black-and-white television screen, and I took him to something called Cinerama. And that was three movie screens that didn't really take off, but it, they tried to experiment in those days, with surround sound. It was quite impressive. So during the crucifixion, I leaned down and whispered to him, Jacob, in a minute, you're going to hear thunder. Be ready. And suddenly, with the surround sound, they're... He screamed, let's get out of here! And I picked him up on a palm and we ran out. (laughs) As realistic as surround sound is, they cannot duplicate the atmosphere of a crowd roaring, a crowd of 80,000. And if you've ever felt it, you'll know why so many pay so much to sit like frozen sardines in a cold stadium. They could have the same thing at home on a flat screen TV in high definition and the warmth and comfort of their home, but they go there for their atmosphere. And the first time I ever felt it as a new Christian, it was almost magical, almost spiritual, and it made me think of what it'll be like when we stand around the throne praising God, where the angels cry out, holy, holy, or the creatures around the throne cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, but as we imagine what that must be like or what it's going to be like, we must never forget or never remove the glory of God from his holiness. Those creatures cried, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. To try and separate the glory of God from the holiness of God is like trying to separate the sun from its heat. As you know, a sunrise is an awesome experience, it's, there's such a serenity and a, a sense of peace, and it's a thing of beauty. But glorious though it may be, we must never forget that if you and I fell under the face of the sun, we would be consumed in a second. That little flame going up there, that's 60,000 miles. That's the, the sun at the surface is millions of degrees of heat. Moses once asked God to see His glory. He wanted close up of the sunrise, and God says, you can't see me and live. This is because God's glory would have instantly consumed him. Now, it seems like a strange thing. Moses said, just let me have a glimpse of your glory. God says, you can't see me and live. Think of it like this. A judge has before him an unrepentant criminal who has raped three teenage girls and then slit their throats. And as the judge reads his crime to him before he passes sentence, the criminal smiles, an evil smile. What will be the attitude of the judge to that criminal? Let me bring empathy into it. Imagine if it was your sister or your daughter that had that happen. How should that judge feel? Should he be angry? Oh, yes, he should be wrath-filled and bring down that gavel with his teeth gritted, in fact, his wrath will be in direct proportion to his goodness. If he's good, he'll be wrath-filled. If he isn't wrath-filled, he's not a good judge and shouldn't even be sitting on the bench. Exodus 33, verse 18. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. Then God said, I'll make my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God says, okay, you want to see my glory? I'll pass my goodness before you. Why did he pass his goodness before him? Because we cannot separate the glory of God, the wrath of God, the holiness of God from his goodness. In fact, His wrath will be in direct proportion to his goodness. And God is so morally perfect, like that judge, was wrath-filled with that criminal. If Moses stood before his goodness, the goodness of God would spill over on him and consume him in wrath. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, So it shall be while my glory passes by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So God put Moses in the cleft of a rock and there is the gospel. God has taken us and put us in Christ in the rock, rock of ages. Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Jesus warned that no one would see God unless they're pure of heart. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's what we have in Christ. His blood makes us pure so we can stand in His presence. The only reason you and I can look at a sunrise is because we're looking at it through the lowliness of the atmosphere. And the only reason we can look upon God and Christ is because God came low for us to see his attributes, to see his glory. And when we look upon his glory, the glory of the only begotten son, and see the virtues of humility and love and kindness and gentleness and meekness, we must must never separate it from the fact that he's holy, that the lamb is coming back as a lion. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When someone says to me, I don't believe in hell, I just say one thing to them, Hitler. I say, you know who Adolf Hitler was? I say, yeah, you know what he did? I wrote a book called Hitler God in the Bible and so I researched for the book I was in tears as I studied the Holocaust and saw what he did to the Jews and to homosexuals and blacks and gypsies. He slaughtered 11 million people in a horrible, horrible way. I was just broken as I watched these old film clips they had. So I say, you know what he did? Mm -hmm. So you think he should have a mansion next to you in heaven? Where should Hitler go? And almost every person that minutes before said, there's no hell, they say, hell. Hell becomes convenient for certain evil people. but We know that God is good in the truest sense of the word, and that puts all of us in jeopardy because the scriptures say, there's none good, not one. If God is good, we say, how could he create hell? When we should be saying, if God is good, how could he not create hell? There must be ultimate justice if God is good. A.W. Tozer said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. So here's our problem. We have a world that trivializes sin. I have witnessed to literally thousands of people, many on camera, and what I do is I take them through the Ten Commandments because the Bible says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. If people want to understand their sinners, they must be confronted. In the conscience, by the law of God, the moral law, Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. So I take them through the Ten Commandments. I do what Jesus did. I do what Paul did. I say to people, do you think you're a good person? They say, yeah, I'm a really good person. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, most every man will proclaim his own goodness. Why? Because their standard of goodness is very low. So I show them God's goodness. I say, how many lies do you think you've told? I so said, I've told a lot of lies in my life, but they're just little lies. Just small lies when I was a little kid. So have you ever stolen something? It happens almost every time. Yeah, I've stolen just little things, nothing really big, just when I was a little kid. So when I say to them, Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after them has committed adultery already with her in his heart. I'm expecting them to say, when I say, have you ever lusted after a woman? The Answer Yeah, but just little woman, nothing big, no, no, really, just really. Humanity trivializes sin and brings the very character of God low. Sin is no big deal as far as they're concerned, but we know it's a big deal, and God gives it capital punishment. Death shows that God is serious about sin. His eyes see sin as exceedingly sinful. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Lust is adultery in his eyes. Hatred is murder. And every time we sin, we store up his wrath. You see, the world throws themselves into sin because they look at pornography and lightning didn't strike, felt a little guilty, but it's easy to get rid of that small, still voice. The judge in the courtroom of the mind, you can sear your conscience. God didn't care, and so they become emboldened, not realizing that every time they sin, they are storing up wrath. Just like a freeway chase, you see these cars, police cars, the law is chasing a criminal. He's violated the law, and the guy that's giving the commentary in the the helicopter will say something like this, "Ah, he's just gone through a stop sign, he's making it worse, oh, he's gone through a red light, wrong side of the road, he's making it worse for himself every time he violates the law. What's he saying? He's storing up wrath, it's going to be revealed when he stands before the judge, and that's what sinners are doing. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Others can soul themselves by saying God is love. How could a God of love, who was the essence of love, create a place called hell? It doesn't make sense until you realize that a judge must set aside his emotions when passing judgment. In fact, the U.S. judicial oath says this, I do solemnly swear that I will administer justice without respect to persons, so help me God. In fact, a judge will instruct jurors to set aside their emotions and judge only by the evidence. And that's why justice is internationally depicted as a blindfolded woman called Lady Justice holding scales and a sword. The blindfold represents the fact that justice is impartial. It's no respecter of persons. The scales represent the weighing of the evidence only. No emotion, just the evidence. And the downward sword represents punishment. And the Bible warns God is no respecter of persons. He will not be swayed by wealth, by power, or celebrity. And the day will come when he sets aside his love rich in mercy though he may be, and he will instead put on the fearful cap of wrath and pass terrifying judgment on all those that have violated his moral law. What a fearful thing. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen to how the Bible speaks of that day. This is rather strange. We're fearful. But listen to what the Scriptures say in Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness, and let the field be joyful and all that's in it. Then all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord for His coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people and his peoples with truth. Here it's saying Judgment Day. It's going to be a wonderful day. The heavens will rejoice. The earth will be glad. The sea will roar and the field will be joyful and the trees of the wood will rejoice before the Lord. And what does it mean? Think of it like this. Back in the 1800s, in the west of our country, a lawless cowboy town where women are raped daily, where banks are robbed, the sheriff's been shot, people are murdered, it's a lawless town. So the good people of the town gather together, And they hire two sharpshooters, U.S. Marshals. They're going to come to the town and give it its Judgment Day. Who's going to be fearful? Only the criminals. Who's going to rejoice? The good people of that town. And the thought of Judgment Day terrifies us. Why? Because of our guilt. We're sinful by nature. But what a wonderful day it will be when justice is done. In 1990, three Northwest Airline pilots were thrown in jail. And the judge threw them in jail because the three of them were drunk when they flew a plane with 60 people on board. And the judge says, you have betrayed these people. You have betrayed the public. And how much more should we have a sober attitude when we realize that God has entrusted us with the gospel? He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have been entrusted with a message of everlasting life for humanity. And we must approach it soberly and not change the nature of God because we're fearful of reaction. Folks, many of our modern popular preachers have become motivational speakers. They should have been plumbers or electricians. They're not sons of thunder in a pulpit preaching righteousness in the great congregation, speaking of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Many other preachers, like prosperity preachers, I don't care they preach prosperity. What worries me is not what they say, it's what they don't say. They don't preach Christ crucified for the sin of the world, the savior to save us from wrath to come. They don't talk of judgment day, they don't mention hell. Jesus is just a means of gain. We should not only tremble at what we've been entrusted with and not change it because we're fearful of man, but we should tremble because we're fearful for mankind. Think of your friends and your family and your workmates and your neighbors upon whom the wrath of God abides, and we've been entrusted with a message of God's mercy, His forgiveness. For the last 12 years or so, I've been going to Huntington Beach Pier and getting on a box every Saturday, except when I travel, and preaching the gospel to passers-by. I don't have a bullhorn and yell at people. I'm not into that. I give away money, and that gets people's attention. A preacher giving away money is like water running uphill. It's unnatural, and it gets attention. And the way me and my preaching buddy do it is we have a handful of $1 bills, and we just ask trivia. Paul in the book of Athens, sorry, in the book of Acts, when he was preaching in Athens, stood up, and before he preached the gospel, he quoted Greek poets. Well, I don't know any Greek poets, so I asked trivia and I give away money when people get trivia correct. I'll say things like this. What is the capital of France? It rhymes with arras and begins with P. And people get it. And they say, oh, Paris? I say, that's right, here's a dollar. And We give them a clap, and people say, what's going on over there? I'll say, what's your name? And she says, Hilda? Hey, that's right, here's your dollar. <laughs> It creates good feeling. It makes people laugh. And they come around and just say, okay, who wants to go for $5? If you think you're a good person, let's go for $5. I don't want any Christians. I want good people. And so I get a non-Christian stand up there and say, you think you're a good person? Yeah, I got $5. You're not. If you are, I'll give you $5. If you're not, I'll still give you $5 because you're a good sport. And then I say, well, let's do it. I'm the prosecutor. You're the defendant. These are your jury of peers. Let's do it. How many lies have you told in your life? And they go, lots. You ever stolen something? You just take them through the commandments. And in the end, they say, you didn't earn the $5, but I'm going to give it to you. You know why? Because I like you. And that's how God gives everlasting life. Much of the world thinks they can earn eternal life by doing things, lying on beds of nails, sitting on hard pews, facing mecca, fasting, praying, doing good works. You can't bribe the judge of the universe. Eternal life comes because God is rich in mercy, It comes as a free gift, and that's why I'm giving this to you, and please remember that, and we often give them literature, and it's a wonderful way of reaching people, but I've got to tell you, every Saturday I have a battle, like last Saturday, yesterday, yeah, yesterday, it was going to rain, so I decided, oh, that's a good excuse, I'm not going, and it was a cold wind coming off the ocean, And so I decided I'd just sit back and watch TV, an old black-and-white movie I had set up, and it was just great. Then I had a phone call from friends who'd come from the other side of the country, and I had arranged to take them to Huntington Beach, and I'd forgotten about it. So I went, and we had a wonderful time. But I'm filled with excuses. Every time I go there, I know I'm going somewhere I don't want to go to say something I don't want to say to people who don't want to hear it. But I can't not go. Why? Hell exists. I can't sit and do nothing. I can't live a life of self-indulgence when people are going to hell. Wherefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. Oh, death shows that God is serious about sin, but the cross shows us that he's serious about his love for sinners. We don't have a negative message. We have the most positive message this world could ever hope to hear, that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and mortality to light through the gospel. We have something greater than the cure to cancer. If we've had a cure to cancer, people are still going to die. But we have the cure to death itself in Jesus Christ. God puts his life in us, and the life of God supersedes the power of death. We have a glorious message. Now, if you're fearful, like me, to reach out to the lost, I'm not saying stand on a soapbox, but I'm saying you could give someone a gospel tract. You could share the gospel with them. If you have trouble with fear, don't pray for less fear. Pray for more love, because that's the problem. Imagine this. You've got a friend who has a swimming pool, but it's not heated. Horrors. (laughs) I am such a wimp, and I've done this. You go to a pool, and it's not heated, and you stand on the edge, and you think, I'm going to dive in. No, I'm not. It's freezing. It's going to freeze my flesh. People in the pool, your friends are saying, jump in, it's okay. What are you, a wimp? Just dive in. But there's still that fear. Same scenario, we'll just change it up a little. My four- four-year-old boy has fallen into that pool and he's drowning. Am I going to worry about how cold the water is? Am I going to worry about my flesh? Do I need people to coax me in? No. I will immediately dive in there because love could not stand on the edge and the waters of personal evangelism are freezing. But if you love people, if you have the love of Christ within you, if you are soundly saved and God has written his law upon your heart and caused you to walk in his statutes, and the essence of God's law is to love your neighbor as yourself, you will not stand there in fear. Love will swallow your fears. You'll just dive in and say, God, I need your help. I don't know what to say. Please teach me what to say. The number one thing that has helped me in sharing the gospel, even with strangers, is one question. This has totally dissipated my fears. This is the question. If you don't remember anything else about today, remember this. Ask sinners, or people, anyone, what do you think happens after someone dies? I can meet a complete stranger and within 30 seconds be witnessing to him because of that question. I say, hey, how you doing? Nice day? And they say, yeah, real nice. What's your name? Fred. Fred, I'm Ray. Fred, i got a question for you. What? what do you think happens after someone dies? I haven't mentioned Jesus, God, the Bible, heaven, hell, the cross, repentance, judgment day, the blood of Christ, all these things that make them and us feel just a little uncomfortable. I've asked him for his favorite subject, his opinion. What do you think happens after someone dies? And Fred will say, boy, I don't know. I said, Do you think about it much? He says, All the time. His all the time dissipates my fears. He's not the Antichrist. He hasn't killed me. He's a human being who thinks like I think. He doesn't want to die. And he thinks about the fact death coming closer and closer each day. And so I say, Well, do you think heaven exists? He says, I don't know. I said, If it does exist, are you a good person? Are you going to make it there? And he says, I hope so. I said, Well, let's find out, Fred. How many lies have you ever told in your life? Have you ever stolen something? Just take them through the commandments. Like Jesus did in Mark 10, verse 17. Rich young ruler runs to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Humanity has a wrong, erroneous understanding of what that word good means. Everyone thinks they're good because their standard of goodness is low. God's good. Is moral perfection in thought, word, and deed. And only God is good. There's none good but God. And then Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he gave him five horizontal commandments. Why did he do that? Because by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. It was the commandment that made sin exceedingly sinful for Paul. Paul says in Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's not because it's foolishness, it's just foolishness to those who are perishing. If I said to you today, hey folks, I've got some great news for you. I've paid a fine for you. $300, paid it today. You'd say, what are you talking about? It's not good news, it doesn't make sense. Go away. But if I said to you, hey folks, on your way to church today, you were spotted going 83 miles an hour on the 91, I have the ticket. They can do it now with technology, 83 miles an hour. It's a $300 fine, but I paid it for you. You'd say, oh, that's good news. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's really kind. Good news will be no good news. It won't be good news until you understand you've violated the law. And it's the same with the gospel. It's not good news to the world. Until they understand they've violated God's law, they're under his wrath, and that Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes or trusts in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm filled with excuses despite all this. Listen to this letter we received just on Thursday at the ministry. Dear Living Waters, thank you all for all you do. You've lit a fire under me through your online sermons and videos. My wife and I are homebound. She is paralyzed from her neck down and I'm paralyzed from my armpits down. We've witnessed to our caregivers and family for years, but have been on a pity party for what we can't do. You have taken away our excuses. We do have a wheelchair van, and we're able to go to the bank, drugstore, and gas station, and local places. I have to recline in my wheelchair every 15 to 20 minutes, which complicates and limits what I can do, but no more excuses. They brought your textbook, We bought your textbook, the School of Biblical Evangelists on Amazon. I'm on lesson five, no one will come to our home without hearing the law and the gospel. I'll also give tracts and talk to bank tellers and store cashiers, and then they sign their name. That made me feel ashamed. If anyone's got excuses, it's people who are in wheelchairs paralyzed from the neck down. My, My excuses are pathetic. Almost every day for 12 years in the city of Christchurch, down under in New Zealand, 350,000 people we in our city square, I preached the gospel almost every day for 12 years. And people often say, what were the highlights? What was a highlight? I said, well, there's number one highlight, and that's when the cast of Jesus Christ Superstar came into the square while I was preaching. I had about 30 or 40 people. It was a cloudy day, kind of cold. And they came, Pontius Pilate heading up this crowd of about 40 people, and Caiaphas, and they were dressed in full garb. And I had the surreal experience of being heckled by Pontius Pilate. <laughs> and Caiaphas. And they were orators. They were dressed in full garb. Caiaphas had his phylactery dressed in black, holding a staff, and he said, we robbed you guys out 2,000 years ago, and you're still going. And every now and then, I didn't realize the, the, the singing cast with a crowd that were following Pilate and Caiaphas, and that joined the crowd, and every now and then that burst into harmonious song, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? The ultimate springboard for the gospel. It was amazing, and afterwards, some of the cast came up, surrounded me, and said, would you please come to see our show? I said, no way, absolutely not. And it's because Superstar is through the eyes of Judas Iscariot, that's why Mary Magdalene kept singing, he's a man, he's just a man. And I said, there's no way I would come. They said, we've got free tickets for you. I said, what time does it start? (laughs) So I went, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Beautiful music. And afterwards, they invited me out the back to meet the cast. And I said, you guys are great. I was proud of you, but you're not preaching the Jesus of the Bible. This is back in 1977. I said, you're not preaching the Jesus of the Bible. And one of the cast members said, but we're making Jesus acceptable to the 20th century. And that's what idolatry does. God saw fit to address idolatry, the greatest sin I believe, in the first two of the Ten Commandments because it opens up the door to all the other sins. And that's why you get people saying, I believe in God and I also believe in a woman's choice. I believe in God and I'm homosexual. Why? Because they've got a God in their own image. They've shaped a God to conform to their sins, a non-existent God that is mute and doesn't dictate any morality. If you study the history of Israel, it's very predictable. What they did is they forsook God's law, just like America has done, created a God in their own image, whether it be a golden calf or a wooden God or whatever, and because there was no moral dictate, they gave themselves to sin and that brought judgment. And that's exactly what's happened in our nation. We have a form of godliness. We have a a God who is depicted as a divine butler or a celestial Santa Claus, a smiling God who has no concern for sin, righteousness, or judgment. So what should we do? Well, we do have a problem. We have a nation filled with idolaters, and blasphemers, and adulterers, and fornicators, and homosexuals. I was just last week, and the week before, after this recent school shooting, going to a local college. I go there most days, and film people, witness to them on film. And the question I've been asking is, why are we having school shootings? And I said, this kid in Florida who killed 17 people, why do you think he did it? And the students are very predictable. They say, well, he was adopted. And I said, well, millions of people are adopted. They don't go out and kill people because they're adopted. So, well, he, he was bullied. Well, I was bullied. I didn't go out and kill people because I was bullied. See, but I said, do you think he's evil? I said, no, no, I don't think so. I think he's got a mental disease. I said, well, they shouldn't be punished, should he? If he's got a mental disease, they should put him in a hospital and just take care of him. I said, was this guy evil? Uh, I said, how many people do I have to kill to be evil? He killed 17. What about 19? What about your mother or father that he killed? And they say, yeah, he was evil. But it's like pulling teeth. Why? Because America has forsaken God's law, and it's got no moral rudder. We're like a ship. We don't know right from wrong. We don't know good from evil. Is adultery evil? Don't know everyone does it. Lying, stealing, blasphemy, homosexuality. And what we've got to do is uphold the standard of righteousness, each of us as Christians. There are millions of Christians in our nation. Bill Bright said only 2% share their faith regularly. Could you imagine if the modern church was like the church of the Book of Acts? We would have revival. This nation would be healed by the grace of God because God has given us weapons of warfare, not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We can see revival if we obey the gospel, if we take it to every creature and become bold and become loving and kind and care about others and be concerned for their salvation. If you're not concerned for your neighbor's salvation, I'm concerned for yours. Charles Spurgeon said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself, be sure of that. Love couldn't stand at the edge of a swimming pool let a four-year-old drown. And love cannot sit on a pew and say, I don't care, I'm just worried about myself. I'm more concerned about myself than I am their eternal welfare. And that thought challenges me. It helps me deal with my fears. Someone told me the other day, they went to a funeral, and as they sung Amazing Grace, he couldn't believe what he saw in front of him. The words were, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a person like me. Wretch was too strong a word to use. And that's understandable for people when they think they're good. Why would you say you're a wretch? But when you understand God's holiness, Maybe wretch isn't strong enough, because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We drink iniquity like water, and we love darkness more than we love light. So let me begin to draw to a close, which is a meaningless preacher's statement. (laughs) By sharing this thought with you. A man, a blind man got on a bus. When this blind man got on a bus, a man who was in the bus stood up and gave him his seat. It was a great thing, right? for a man to stand up and give a blind man a seat. No, it wasn't. It's a very bad thing that he did, and he actually lost his job because he did that. You know why? He was the bus driver. (laughs) Information can be incredibly powerful. It can transform our minds in a second. That was good information. That was bad. And God has given us information to transform a sinner's thinking in an instant. And it's the moral law. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. I'm sure you've heard that verse, but have you heard it in context? This is from the Amplified Bible, so I'm going to read it a little louder. (laughs) My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge of my law. I won't read all of it for the sake of time. If people have no knowledge of God's law, they won't see sin as being exceedingly sinful. They'll continue to think they're good and they don't need a savior. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. It's as simple as that. When David faced Goliath, he didn't just choose five smooth stones. He had five smooth stones and a sling. And it was a sling that gave that stone its thrust. If he had just thrown it, it would have bounced off Goliath's head. But that sling gave that stone its power. And God has given us a sling of the law to give the gospel its power so that it penetrates the human mind. The good soil hearer in the parable of the sower is he who hears and understands. A genuine convert understands. What brings understanding? Knowledge. Paul says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look, if you're on a plane and you're enjoying the flight, and you knew you had to jump 10,000 feet, but you wouldn't put on a parachute, the best thing I can do for you is hang you out the plane by your ankles for five seconds. Ooh, give me the parachute. Fear is good. It's not always your enemy. Fear can be your friend. Fear will stop you going to the edge of a 1,000-foot cliff. Fear will make you put on a parachute. Fear will make you put on a seatbelt. Fear can be good. And through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And so don't be afraid to see sinners tremble like Felix trembled. Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment with Felix, and Felix trembled. That's not bad, it's good. So if you can make a sinner tremble by saying, boy, you're in big trouble on judgment day, aren't you? You just told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer. at heart. What are you going to do? And he'll say, well, what must I do to be saved? That was my testimony the night I was converted. The law went like a into my heart when I realized that lust was adultery in God's eyes. And it prepared my heart for grace. It gave me understanding in my sinfulness so I could understand what Jesus did on the cross. Paul in Romans 2 says, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? All we're doing is what Jesus did, is what Paul did. So as we close, I want to show you two clips. I was at a, producing a little video called Divine Justice, based on the word I'm sharing with you today, but visually. And I had a Jehovah's Witness young lady who kept talking about getting knowledge. She didn't know she was a Jehovah's Witness. She said, oh, I've got to find knowledge. I've got to do this. And when I finished witnessing to her, she said, this guy here who's been listening to us is a Jehovah's Witness. He is very knowledgeable. So I turned to him and I said, can I interview you on camera? And he said, sure. So when you watch this, watch how a wrong understanding of God's character and nature makes him think that he can earn everlasting life. That's the basis for all the big religions, Islam, Hinduism, etc. a wrong understanding of God's character and nature. They don't see God as being a divine judge who sees the thought life from a, uh, a standard of holiness. And so they think they can earn eternal life by their works, just like all the cults. So watch how he demeans the character of God, and that makes way for him to say, I can earn everlasting life. So uh, let's look at this. Do you have a witness? Indeed I am. How do I get everlasting life?
2: You live your life choosing good and learning what that is.
1: So if I've got a knife in my back, three minutes to live, how can I enter the kingdom? I'm dying. I know I've sinned. I've committed adultery in my heart by lusting after woman. I've lied and stolen. I'm under God's reign. How can I enter the kingdom? Two and a half minutes. Honestly?
2: The kingdom of God... God is not so petty as to... begrudge you those small, inconsequential things. This vast, infinite universe of ours, this... infinite possibilities that there are,
1: A minute and a half, how can I enter the kingdom? Help me.
2: In the end, I believe it's the choices you've made in your life. Committing adultery, doing things
1: like that. Looking with lust, that's committing adultery and a half. So how can I be saved? How can I enter the kingdom?
2: At that point? Honestly, Jehovah's Witnesses, we believe that uh, in the end of days. One minute.
1: Pleading with you, please, Brian, help me. How can I enter the kingdom? What can you do for me? What can you say? I suppose, I don't know. Think of the thief on the cross. Remember he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was nailed to the cross. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't do anything. All he could do was turn to the Savior and say, Lord, remember me. And see, Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He was saved by the mercy of God, not by what he did. He was pinned to the cross. The law put him on that cross. And I don't think, you remember what he said to the other thief. He said, we're here justly. I don't think he was saying, look, we're thieves and we're justified in being crucified by the Romans for theft. I don't think he was saying that. I was saying, we're here justly because we've sinned against God. We deserve to die for our sins. And the only thing he could do was turn to the Savior. And salvation comes through doing that. Christ died for our sins. We've broken His commandments. We're pinned to the cross by that same law, by lying and stealing and looking at women with lust. We commit adultery in our heart. If we hate someone. The Bible says we're a murderer. And so we can't do anything to save ourselves. just a matter of turning to Jesus and repentance and putting our trust in Him. And the moment we do that because of His death and resurrection, God remits our sins and in an instant and grants us the gift of everlasting life. And that's the good news of the gospel.
2: Uh, I suppose much of my inability to answer comes from the difference in our uh,
1: views of what happens after death. Uh, I'm saying what happened before death. That's what worries me. That's where I was putting it down. I want to know what must I do to be saved. And the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You can have assurance of everlasting life through the new birth, through trusting alone in the grace of God, which is alone in Christ. Okay, thanks a lot for talking to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's pray, and then we'll show a short video and close. Father, we pray for anyone here today who's never tasted of the grace of God, that's never understood their own sinfulness. We pray you grant the repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they'd see the cross in all its horror and yet in all its glory and pass from death to life because of your goodness this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have a short video just to share with you what's on the back table uh, by Mark Spence. Thank you for listening today. God bless you guys. Thank you.